so we are in this space. I want to give you an update on the building. This is it. <laughs> this is one room of it. On the other side of that wall, there's room just like this that used to be part of this. Uh, but when they turned it into a dance studio, they made it half, right? So this is half of the full space uh, that we would have in this area. And then we have the two rooms upstairs. We have one front room downstairs. And by the way, feel free to walk around and look at stuff. How did we get in here? We haven't bought the building yet. We've been praying, and I've been asking you to pray for God's favor as we go through this process. And one of the things that we ask the owners for is early access to the building. Now, we were paying a per week rental fee to the school over there for how many hours we used the space. And so we basically negotiated a deal with the current owners of this building that we would be able to put that rental money toward the down payment that we have to have for this property. I told you all that that down payment we need is $85,000, right, to buy, uh, to get the loan to pay for the the rest of the building and uh, we are over halfway to that goal already but um, that's a real red line for the leadership team we have talked about it we've prayed about it we've met with our building team and we feel like we don't want to borrow for the down payment the bank offered us that uh, but we have to co-sign for it and we didn't want to do that not that we don't believe in the ministry uh, but the Bible has clear teaching about being a co-signer and so we don't want anyone to co-sign for the space so the beautiful thing is if we uh, get approved for financing and if we get to our down payment red line uh, we will basically own this building as an organization Family Bible Church of Highland Illinois and we'll be the sole owner of the building it'll be obviously uh, the bank will have a, a loan on it uh, but so long as we keep our ministry going here will be blessed and fine. I want to say something else though that the Lord reminded me of this morning as we we're singing in this place. Dance House has a funny history and I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time on this but I do want to say this. This was purpose-built to be a church and the church that was here ended up dissolving in 2005. Family Bible Church started in 2005 there was this move, the church that was here, the Church of Christ, they wanted to give it to a nonprofit they owed on the building, um, but they couldn't find any takers to take over the debt on the building at that time. And so it was sold to a Christian dance studio, okay? Well, the Christian dance studio went under within about a year and a half, I think, or two years. And at that point, they sold it off to another dance studio who's the current owner, Dance House LLC. Why do I sell it to you? I really... The focus is always the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a place to share the gospel with people. That's all this is. Many of you have been in churches or belong to churches where they have buildings. Lots of churches have buildings. But one of the cool things that I just wanted to celebrate this morning, and I told the owners this. We have been very honest with the owners when we went through this process. As, as we're honest with you, and we said, we believe this will be a God thing or nothing. And we believe that God has intended purposes for this place. Now, we're not saying Family Bible Church, <laughs> but maybe. But we believe that God has had his hand on this place, in this space, this sanctuary, right? This building, this ground. There's 7.1 acres here that belong to this building. Pretty much when you walk out of the building, everything you see around it to the tree lines would go with the building. We believe that God has ordained it for gospel purposes. And we told the owners that. We said it'll be a God thing or nothing, and we think he has purposes for the land. And so we've been praying for that. God has led us as far and even given us favor enough with the owners to get in here early that we could begin to uh, worship. I don't know if you understand, maybe, but, and praise God for the middle school, but when we sang the words this morning, holy, 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 
First time since 2005. Praise God. Praise God. So, God's redemptive purpose. God's redemptive purpose. May he be glorified. Continue to pray with us in this. We believe it'll be a God thing or nothing. And we're here, like Dale said, in faith, moving forward, right? And so join us and continue to pray with us as we continue to uh, seek favor with the bank that we could be approved because we have to go through that. And we had to put together a huge packet. We gave it to the bank. We're waiting to hear from them now if they want to even take a risk with our congregation. And then pray for the down payment that if we can make that red line, we'll be in this place. The deadline for all this, by the way, is November 26th. Everything has to be done by then or or we're we're done with it. So uh, pray with us in that way. We're going to pray for that this morning. One other thing I want to remind you of, I asked you last week to pray for this, and then we'll dismiss the blast students, is uh, we're praying for a worship leader. Praise God, Nate and Emily stepped up this morning, and they've actually made themselves available as interims. Dan will be back next week. He's not going anywhere, but you know he wants to step out of that. So continue to play. We believe God has a man or a woman that he has gifted and called into that ministry, and so pray that he would be very clear revelation to that person and to us of what he's doing, that we could continue to worship together. Can we do that? Awesome. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for this place to meet. We thank you so much for your, your uh, unbelievable generosity to us over, eight, over 13 years of ministry um, in various locations. Uh, we thank you that your church, the people, are portable. That everywhere we go, we can bring your gospel. And we thank you this morning we have this place to meet in. May you be glorified. I, I pray, Father, that if nothing else, in a small way, uh, our voices bring glory to you in this place this morning. Uh, has redemptive purpose for our brothers and sisters who are here before us. May they be blessed. Um, Father, may you be glorified amongst your people. We pray a prayer of thanks for Nate and Emily, as we said this morning already, as they led us today in worship. We pray a prayer of thanks for Dan Burns. He's been so faithful in ministry to us. And we pray for the person that you are calling into this ministry, that you would give them a passion and vision and a a compulsion to be obedient to your call as they lead us in worship. So, Father, we trust you with that. We believe your Holy Spirit can do more than we could ever hope for or imagine, and we want great things, so we come to you for those things, Father. May you be glorified. Do your will. Give us favor with the bank and favor with the sellers. Continue favor as we move forward, if this is your will for us. And if not, we have you, which is more than we can ever hope for or imagine. So we give you thanks and praise for your great gift to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. And we're going to continue uh, where we uh, have been for a minute in the book of Acts together. Um, I want to say thanks also to Mike Dumsdorf for uh, sharing the word of God last week. It was awesome. I actually got to listen to it. If you weren't here for it, I would encourage you to listen to it on the website. Phenomenal. It's great to uh, hear um, a brother proclaim the word and uh, just God's power in that. Uh, We're going to continue the book of Acts this morning. And I want to ask a question of you, and I, it's almost like a begging a question, right? But have you ever had to travel a hard road in life? Like, have you ever had to face things that you think are impossible to get through, let alone overcome? If you could, if you could have anything in those moments of trial and adversity, what would they be? Like, what could happen that would make it better? 
We've been studying the book of Acts, and we've heard these amazing stories about the apostles who were following Jesus Christ, the disciples who were coming to hear for the first time that God loved them so much that he gave his only son that they could be free of sin. They, people being released out of religious uh, slavery and out of lies and, and uh, disorientation toward false gods and, and everything that evil that came with it. But this road is not an easy road, and we're going to hear that today. I think today we have great wisdom from God's word on what it means to walk a hard road. I want to do what we always do. We're going to pray for God to inspire us to understand his word. We believe the Bible is different. And so let's pray that he would reveal himself to us through it. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for this place of worship and now of proclamation. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be both teacher uh, and, he, and help us to hear, that you would um, help me to speak and help all of us to hear, that you would help us to read your text and come alive with your word, that we could truly engage you. And uh, we believe that you are revealing yourself through your scriptures, and we believe that absolutely we need you to understand it rightly, uh, to, to apply it in our hearts and our minds, and to to live it out, that we can't do it without you. And so today, Father, we give you the space and this time for your glory. Would you teach us by your word? Would you teach us through the power of your spirit? Would you conform us to your image more and more as we seek you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at Acts chapter 21, where Mike left off last week. So if you want to turn there, that should be Oh, I had double title in this week. That should be uh, page 775 or so if you're using one of our Bibles. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to kind of just talk through it as we go here um, and kind of, you know, pull some things out of the text that seem super relevant. You remember that Paul's been on this amazing uh, missionary journey. He's been traveling around proclaiming the good news, and we're going to hear more about that later today, about where he's been going and what he's been doing with his life since he's come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Um, but now he's kind of on this uh, farewell tour, if you will. He's been making rounds. Remember last week, Mike shared with us that, that they were weeping and, and, and heartbroken because Paul said, I might not ever see you again. This is my last time. I'm sharing with you and they were broken hearted about it and we'll hear more of that today as well so we're going to pick it up in verse chapter 21 verse 1 listen to the very first words of the text after we had torn ourselves away from them that's Luke writing about leaving the people there and the elders in Ephesus I believe we put out to sea and we sailed to Kos the next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phenosia uh, and went aboard and set sail with them. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them for seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to continue on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up there, we left, and we continued on our way. As the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach, we knelt together and we prayed. After saying our goodbyes to one another, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage then from Tyre and landed in Ptolemais. Uh, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Uh, leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and uh, stayed at a house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who were prophesying. 
After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming over to us, he took Paul's belt and he tied his own hands and feet with it. And he said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. This is the farewell journey of the Apostle Paul, right? And you can just feel the angst and the anguish as he makes his round saying, this is the last time I will see you. This is the last time I will talk with you. To the point that they're like rendering themselves. They're really having a hard time letting them go. But there's something on the road that I think is comforting and it's normative for Christians and it's our first point this morning. And it's the simple word hospitality. I don't know if you caught it in there, but as Paul is leaving one group and going to another, he continues to find people with whom he can stay for days or hours or often longer at a time. It's a normative experience. Look in verse 4. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them for seven days. They get off a cargo ship, right? They, they're in a strange city. And then there in that place, they find disciples in the community whom they can stay with. I've told you before, the disciples are nothing more than those who are learning about Jesus. These aren't like super saints or super Christians. They don't walk around with like big crosses or make a big show of it. But they're learning to become like their Savior. And in that way, Paul and the others travel with him. And remember, it wasn't just Paul. It was this entourage of people who were rolling around with Paul as he makes this journey back toward Jerusalem, including the author of Luke and Acts. They're invited in also. Hospitality becomes normative then for the, the disciples who are walking with Paul as he continues to proclaim the good news and, and reach the Gentiles. It happens again, I believe, in, uh, let's see here, uh, verse... Before seven, yeah, we continued our voyage from Tyre and landed in Ptolemais, uh, where we greeted the brothers, there it is, and we stayed with them for a day. So again, they go to another place and they greet the brothers and then they go and stay with them in their place. So like it's normative, it's a normal experience for Paul and the apostles or the disciples to go and stay. And then the last one we have is there in verse eight, leaving next day we reached a Caesarea Philippi, or Caesarea, I'm sorry I said that, I have it, and stayed at the house of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven. Now, do you remember Philip? Philip was the guy who ran alongside of the eunuch and then told him about the gospel from the book of Isaiah, right? This is the same Philip here in the book of Acts. And he has a home and he receives Paul and the other uh, disciples into his home as a normative experience. Why do I make a big deal of this? A few weeks ago, Steve Hampsh shared with us how much um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, I believe it was, who were opening their homes for church meetings and for Bible studies and for love and for meals. I mean, it's not even like high holy stuff. It's just opening your home up as a hospitality is a normal experience, right? And we have this idea that um, Every time Paul leaves and he's full of anguish and he gets invited into another disciple's home to be filled again and encouraged again. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I hope that you do. I mean, I was really praying about this and I thought, I hope for all the people at Family Bible and beyond, all the believers, you have an opportunity to both host someone and to be hosted by someone. One of the things we've been able to do over the years is send short-term mission trip uh, teams to other countries. And by default, when you travel to another country, you have to stay somewhere. Now, some of those times, we've actually rented like hotels out, and we've stayed in hotel rooms, and we've had cash transactions, and that's fine. 
But can I share with you that the most meaningful and intimate times have been when people have opened their homes to us? And they said, I don't have much, but here's my eight-year-old son Daniel's bed. You can sleep in his bed, and he'll sleep on the floor. Or come into my home and stay. We have these bunks, and they're really uncomfortable, but you can stay in these bunks. And, and our team stayed in a, a bunkhouse where the missionary himself lived. Or how about the other way around? We just had uh, Ronnie and Lorenda in from Guatemala, and I was so blessed to invert it for them and say, you know what, stay at our home when you're here. Will you do me the honor? And they stay with us for two days. <laughs> and being guests, having guests is hard, but it's such a blessing. And I hope that we all get to experience the blessing of hospitality. It's a normative experience. We ought to be open uh, specifically and especially to those who are uh, intentionally sharing the gospel. These aren't necessarily vacations, right? Um, they're on mission. I remember whenever uh, Roni and Lorinda left, and we didn't do anything extraordinary, but I think it was just a blessing to be with people who loved them and loved Jesus, right? It's an opportunity. I hope you don't negate how important that is. Uh, one more uh, quick story. I, I spent this last, uh, this last week, I was in L.A. with my brother-in-law, who's a chaplain. Well, he had me into his home for the week. And you go, of course, he's your brother-in-law, right? That's what you do, you know? But um, he, ha he owns a Harley-Davidson, okay? He bought it in February, and so we wanted to go riding. And so I'm like, well, I'm going to go down to the Harley. I'm going to rent a Harley for a day, and it's going to be so awesome. I'll have one day to ride around California with my brother-in-law. It's going to be sweet. And then we get out there, and he goes, I don't know if you're interested, but another chaplain in the Air Force, Chaplain P, has a motorcycle. And he said, you can have it for the whole time you're here. I was like, and he goes, it's not very good. It's not a Harley. And I was like, shut up. <laughs> it has two wheels and a motor, and it runs mostly, right? And I was just, and I was, I was riding through the canyons of California with my brother-in-law, praising God and praying, God, would you bless Chaplain P? I went and met this man, and, and California has a helmet law, and I didn't have a helmet with me, and he gave me his helmet, he gave me his jacket, he gave me everything I needed, and I just, I just said, man, you were convicting me so much, I don't know if I would loan out my Harley to somebody who came to town for a week, but I should. What are the things that we can share in our lives that we take for granted all the time to be a blessing to a brother or sister in the Lord? What are the things that he's, he's uh, gifted to us that we can bless others with? I just hope that we understand that that's a normative part of Christianity. We live into that. As disciples, we ought to be willing to host and be hosted by others to live in grace in that way. All right. Going back now, picking up again in verse, um, in verse 10. After that, there had been a number of days. We've been there a number of days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming over to us, he took Paul's belt. This is the Apostle Paul. And he tied his own hands and feet with it. Very demonstrative. And he said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. So all along the way, people have been telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. And they get to this stop, and this prophet, who's known to be a prophet of God, comes up and says, this is how it's going to be. And he binds himself up, hands and feet. And then everyone, and look at the word says that we heard this, and we and the people began to plead with Paul, don't go, just stop, um, don't continue. But then look at 13, then Paul answered. And here's the thing about being on a hard road with God. 
And this is what we're going to kind of settle into today, is you have to have a steadfast spirit. You ha- and we're going to talk about what that means. You have to have a steadfast spirit about what you're being called to do. Look at what it says in verse 13. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I mean, this wasn't easy for Paul to see people saying, don't go, Paul, don't go, Paul. But you know what it seems from te- the text? Paul knew he had to go. He knew God was calling him to go. And he says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound like this prophet said, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, look at what it says, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Paul had to push through. He had to have a steadfast spirit, right, um, in him that this is what God's calling me to do. This is what God's calling us to do. This is what God's put before us to do. And you have to overcome things. It's kind of funny, but I would say that it will not be, it, it will be, um, not be exceptional in your life if God calls you to do something he says you're supposed to do it and then you immediately begin to say hey God's calling me to do this that he immediately starts putting things in your way to test your perseverance in doing it you might say what why would God do that if God's gonna call me to do something he should roll out the red carpet and throw the doors open wide and say go get it walk down easy street baby no that's not the way it works right he immediately starts going do you understand I'm calling you and there's resistance the people who you love and who love you are saying don't do it don't do it I remember one of my favorite people um, and this is just my story I'm not but it's just my story I remember whenever I started hearing the gospel for, and I believed it for the first time and I had the opportunity to just participate with the church I was so overwhelmed and a dear dear friend and mentor of mine when I said I'm gonna quit and go to school and become a pastor this faithful man of God said don't do anything crazy. <laughs> he started check, gut check. No, wait, 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 wait. Don't go crazy. And I thought, you of all people, you should be going, go crazy, go crazy. But he was like, no. And I had to go home and pray, like, God, what? Am I supposed to do this? I have a, a life application here. But I want to say one more thing before I, I get into that is this. I want you to see, and you say, well, God didn't put the blocks in the way. But I want you to see that in verse, where is it at? Four. Look at verse four again. Find the disciples there. We stay with them for seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go. Lest you think it was just people going, I don't want it that way. I don't want that way for you, Paul. They believed they were doing what God was called to do by saying, Paul, stop. This isn't required of you. Jerusalem's going to be terrible for you. Don't go. They were doing that by the power of the Spirit of God. And Paul was answering by the power of the Spirit of God of God. That's why I would say another way, we need a uh, steadfast spirit or we need a steadfast spirit. We need to know that it's a God thing and not an us thing, okay? So how does that work out in real life? I've had friends that have come to me, and this has been just experience, and they've said, I think God has called me to do this, and I'm going to run off and do it, right? And I go, just wait. And they're like, what? Why would I wait? And this is my advice. Maybe it's terrible advice, but listen, If it's a God thing, you will get to a place where you can't not do it any longer. Does that make sense? You wait until you can't not do it. Now, here's the way that works. Some people say, no, you don't understand the urgency. There's kids in the street need to be fed. You don't understand the urgency. There's this thing over here that needs to happen. You don't understand my situation. And and I say, man, you just wait because I believe that God builds up a 
a Holy Spirit tension in us. He builds up this kind of like passion for his message and his direction and his purpose that there comes a moment where in your heart and in your mind and even for the people who are closest to you and around you, you can't not do it anymore. That's a complicated way of saying you have to do it. You have to. And guess what happens? When you have to do it, you will get it done. You will. By the power of God and his grace, you will get it done. There's this testing time, this moment, and you see it here. It says what? That after Paul answered this way, and he could not be dissuaded. Paul's like, I can't not go. At that moment, they gave up and said what? Then the Lord's will. Isn't that funny? I mean, we always think that's an easy thing to get to, the Lord's will. Well, the Lord's will, the Lord's will. That ain't how that works. The Lord's will comes after gut-wrenching prayer and anxiety and pain and suffering and a hard road and hardship and grieving. And then it's like, you know what? Can't be stopped. So the Lord's will. Look at verse 15. After this, we got ready. That's what happened next. Guess what the disciples said? We're going to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. That's what's going to happen. And they surrendered over to the will of God for Paul and indeed for them that they're going to go. So again, if God's calling you to do something, don't do it until you can't not do it. There comes a moment where you'll have to do it if it's of God. We'll talk about why that is in a minute. Here's another thing in here though. Look at verse 13. Paul says this. I am ready not only to be bound, like that prophet said, but I'm ready to die. And then here's the next thing. We should be willing to die for the things of God. We should be willing to die for the things of God. Why would I say that? I'm not trying to make people like, you know, crazy. We see some crazy stuff happen in the world in the name of God. But there's a reality that if my survival, if my life here on earth supersedes the importance of what God is calling me to do, then I don't have my priorities right. If I have to have that job, if I have to have that advance, if I have to have that opportunity, if I have to have that uh, pride thing, if I have to have that whatever, more than I have to have God himself, I got my priorities wrong. All of a sudden, when Paul says, I'm willing to die for this cause, everybody goes, well, what is there to talk about? I mean, what more can someone do to you, Paul, than to kill you in Jerusalem? That's the worst that could happen. And if you're not afraid of that, you're not afraid of anything. And the Apostle Paul moves on. I don't think those are empty words for him. I think he says, I'm willing to die. You know, Jesus says, um, greater love has no one in this. He would lay down his life for his friends. And we always think that there's this like super action hero movie moment where you're like, bam, 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 you know, and like, I saved your life. <laughs> but what if it's more like, no, you go before me. No, you have your way. Like, what if dying to others is much, or dying to ourselves is much more like putting others before us? Think of it as more important. Why would the Apostle Paul go back to Jerusalem? To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to fulfill his calling. And he's willing to put everyone else, Mike said it last week, he's willing to put everyone else before his own life, his own desires, his own ego. And we'll hear about that today more. And so he lays down his life for his friends. I am willing to die. We ought to be. That's no small thing. That's no small thing. Um, but it's, it's a mark of a disciple on the hard road with Jesus. 
Picking up now in verse uh, 15. After this, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh where we were to stay. See here again, hospitality. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received, received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present there. And Paul greeted them and, respond, and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God and they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to the customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, and so we'll tell you what to do. I'm going to stop right here for a second, because I want you to understand the context of what's being said. So James and the elders have been in Jerusalem converting Jews to Christianity, right? Making Jewish believers, people believing in Jesus Christ, but still practicing Jewish customs there. Well, Paul's been out proclaiming good news to the Gentiles. And if you remember, there's been a group of Jews following him around saying this is not right, this is not right, and running him out of town, right? That he's proclaiming uh, a, a different gospel, or a gospel. They don't have a gospel at all, right? But he's proclaiming something that they don't believe in. And so when they come back, when Paul comes back and says, you won't believe all the Gentiles who are converted, they go, you won't believe all the Jews who are converted, right? So they're super excited about both opportunities that God has given them, that there are those who are coming to faith uh, amongst the Gentiles and those coming to faith amongst the Jews. And so, um, so they, they kind of say, they're going to hear you've come, Paul, and it's going to be a big problem because you're offending the Jews amongst the Gentiles. That's what's happening. The, the Gentiles are being converted, but the Jews are being offended, N not necessarily in Jerusalem because they're believing, but out, you know, amongst uh, the Gentile nations. Specifically because you're teaching them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. He's bringing the gospel outside of the context of Judaism, right? Jesus loves you. He's the Messiah. He was sent to, pro to uh, redeem all people. And, and this is a problem in Jerusalem. So they have a solution. Here's what it is. 23. So we'll tell you what to do. There are four men with us who've made a vow. Take these men and join in their purification rituals and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law, right? As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them uh, our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. That should sound familiar. Remember we were following Peter around in Jerusalem, and they decided, they wrote that letter. James stood up and said those things, and they wrote the letter. They sent it out to the churches that those four things should be abstained from, even amongst the Gentile believers. But they want Paul to kind of feign religiosity for the sake of the Jewish believers. Now, you might think that that's a bit heretical, um, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but Paul has this great passage where he says, um, as to Jews, I became like a Jew to save the Jews. As to the Gentiles, like a Gentile to save the Gentiles. He had no problem conforming to a cultural norm so he could share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he counted it no holiness to himself. He didn't think he was holier because he was taking this vow and shaving his head and, and, and taking these orders. His holiness was found in Jesus Christ. But he was willing to do anything to share with the culture that he was engaged with. 
And so it might surprise you, but this is what they asked them to do. And look at what it says in verse 26. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself alongside them. And then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end. An offering would then be made for each one of them. So Paul does exactly what James and the brothers said to do. He's going to go to Jerusalem and be a Jew to the Jews so by the grace of God he might save some with the gospel. That's what he's going to do. Look at 27. When the, when the seven days were over, some Jews of the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple and they stood up. Now look at The Jews were from the province of Asia. That's where Paul was proclaiming the gospel, right? And, and Paul saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and they seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and against our law and against this place. That sounds very much like what was said about him in Ephesus, according to the temple of Artemis, by the way. And so the proclamations he's preaching against us, against our law, and against our temple, right, this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. 29, they had previously seen Trophimus from the Ephesian in the city with Paul and had assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. There are still areas where Gentiles can't go. They can't be you know, they can't be invited in. And they had seen uh, Troph Trophimus there, and they assumed that Paul had brought him into the sacred area. Now, there's a couple things here. The assumption must not have been true. It was a false accusation. The other thing to keep in mind is that um, Tro Trophimus is one of those guys who has been traveling with Paul in his eclectic band of believers. I told you about that, the diversity in the people of God. And so he's there in Jerusalem, um, probably not in the temple area, but they had accused Paul of bringing him in to stir up the people that he's creating some kind of an outrage. Well, the whole city was aroused in verse 30, and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul, and they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were slammed shut. They were then trying to kill him, and news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem would be in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd, and when the rioters saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked that he, uh, then he asked who he was and what he had done. So here's an irony. Here's an irony. The prophet had said, Paul, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound just like this. Everybody goes, oh, that's horrible. But the truth is when he gets to Jerusalem, he gets beaten by the religious leaders to the point that whenever the commanders come down, they save his life by binding his hands and feet. I just think that's interesting, right? So what the, what the prophet said is going to come true, right? Um, comes true, but it comes true in a saving way for Paul. It comes tr tr uh, true in a moment that Paul needs it, it seems to me. And Paul is indeed bound. And he, here's uh, the next point. Prophecy is fulfilled. Um, prophecy is fulfilled. What the prophet said came true. Now, we have this idea of like, what's a prophet? Well, a prophet is someone who speaks the truth of God in a moment, right? But prophecies, of, if they're of God, always come true. God's will be done, right? That's what a prophecy is. And, and this prophet had been right for the Apostle Paul's life. And to the horror of the disciples, here it was, fulfilled, but in a kind of a redemptive way. That Paul was bound, hands and feet. They did, you know, that's just interesting to me, right? 
prophecy is fulfilled. So there's this idea, now you say, well, how about in our life? There's this idea of God's sovereignty of our lives. That the things that God spoke to be true will be true. The things that God said are fact are fact. The promises that God made to us in Jesus Christ are promises that will be kept by God in Jesus Christ. That means that the things that are spoken over us aren't up to us. Like Paul just lived into that faith, but it's not up to us because God has made a promise. That's what's going to happen. That's what a prophet does. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ, that these things are assurances to us that he will indeed fulfill his promises in our life. So that's, that's another, uh, another thing here. All right. So we're going to move along here with Paul. So let's see where we're at here. 20, 34. Some in the crowd shouted the one thing and some shouted another, like the riot in Ephesus. And since the, uh, the commander could not get at the truth because of the great uproar, he ordered Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul uh, reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried out by the soldiers. The crowd that had followed him kept shouting, away with him, away with him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? The commander replied, you speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started the revolt and led 4,000 terrorists into the desert some time ago? Like he's got his stories all conflated. And Paul said, I am a Jew like those people out there trying to kill me, from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul then stood on the steps and he motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic. I just want to say a couple things here. Paul addresses the people in their native tongue to his his um his betterment right he speaks to to the commanders in greek and he's like you speak greek and he says i'm no ordinary guy i'm no ordinary person and then he turns to the people and he speaks in aramaic which is the language of the people there probably language that jesus spoke in himself he turned to them and he began to speak in aramaic and they were all silent because of that and listen to what he says 22 brothers and fathers listen to me now and hear my defense when they had heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamil, Gamaliel, uh, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and, just, and was just as zealous for God as all of you are today. See, identifying with him. Verse 4, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priests and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished, just like he is right now. That was what he was doing. At about noon, I came near Damascus, and suddenly a bright light came from heaven and flashed all around me. I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Then what shall I do, Lord? He, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that I have assigned you to do. Here's a funny thing. We have heard Paul give this story multiple times in the book of Acts. 
He, he had the experience. He went and he told the people the experience. He's told other people his experience. And he's just saying, this is what happened to me. I was just like you. And then I met this one Jesus Christ who changed my life. It's his good testimony of his conversion experience. But right in the middle of this, nestled in there, it's been there the whole time through the book of Acts. I want you to see it because I want to talk about God's sovereignty in a hard road. Because look at what it says right in the middle of it in verse 10. Get up and go to Damascus and there you will be told all that I have assigned you to do. This is a powerful word for Christians. That God has given us assignments. Now, this is like a little, like, kind of Dale was saying earlier, you know, this is like one of those things, like, what? You know, like, really? God has given me an assignment? But he's being told that you're going to go and you're going to hear everything that I, you've been assigned to do. Now, you could take this one of two ways. You could say, you know, Paul's different. That God uniquely revealed himself to Paul, and that's why Paul is so prolific and powerful with the gospel and the Holy Spirit, and that was unique to Paul. But there's a reality that, that this word assignment has meaning, and I want to kind of break it down for a minute. The word assignment means to be established in a post, in a military sense. To be assigned a gate. To be assigned a responsibility, an area, right? This is your territory. To be uh, put in place on purpose, not an accidental thing. It's not like, whoops, that guy ended up at the post. No, 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 that post was made for that guy or that girl. That was the assignment given to them. And, and nestled in the middle of this conversion experience for the Apostle Paul was this revelation of what God had assigned for him to do. There's a really interesting thing about um, what we do as, as young people. Whenever we're going to school and stuff, you know, we start to kind of become the age of discernment. What we're gonna, people start to say, what are you going to do with your life? And you're like, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, right? And, and, and maybe you try to guess on a career path and you kind of try to sort things out, what you're going to do or whatever. And, and that's fine. That's how the world works. Make your decisions, right? But there's this reality that as one who's been converted by Jesus Christ, one who's been empowered by the Holy Spirit, that in that unique relationship, in that covenant relationship with heaven, you've been given opportunities you did not have before. You've been given assignments, posts that you can live into. There's this con, you know, kind of conflation of like um, God's sovereignty and our will uh, as if they're juxtaposed. But the truth is that Paul um, lived into what God had assigned for him, you know. And he, he testifies here about it right now. He tells them about his assignment. Unless you think I'm, I'm making this up, we're going to read through here and you're going to hear. He's told exactly what he's called to do, which is why he has such great conviction to go and to do it. Um, but I think it's important that we know that if God has converted us in Jesus Christ by the Listen to me. By the power of his name, by the right of his blood, and by the power of his resurrection, then he's given us some things to do in this life beyond what we had before. He's given us opportunities uniquely to serve him in certain ways. And so part of our job as a Christian is to discern what are those ways, Lord? What would you have me to do? Where would you have me to go? Uh, not for salvation, but for glorification, that we can glorify God in our lives, that we are converted like Paul was, and that we could say, yes, I'm no longer Saul, but I'm Paul, and I have work to do. Read with me. Verse 11. My companions led me to the land in Damascus because of the brilliance of the light had blinded me. And this is Paul just describing his experience. A man named Ananias came to see me, and he was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. And he stood beside me, and he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I could see 
Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one, to hear his words from his mouth. That's why you might say, well, Paul's unique, right? But well, the Spirit of God lives in us. Look at what it says. You will be his witness to all the men that you have, of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, and, uh, be call and calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me here. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another and in, in prison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, I stood there giving my approval uh, and guarding my clothes, guarding the clothes of those who were killing uh, that man. When the Lord has said to me then, Go, and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is his testimony. He's called to go to the Gentiles. Now, we're going we're to wrap up with this. Here we go. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Said what? God sent me away to the Gentiles because they wouldn't accept me. God sent me away to the Gentiles. And when the crowd heard this, they raised their voices, and they shouted, Rid the earth of him. He is no longer fit to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and finding dust and throwing dust in the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be uh, flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him in this way. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty yet? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and he reported it. What are we going to do, he asked. This man says he's a Roman citizen. The commander then went to Paul and he asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, Paul answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. And Paul said this, I was born a citizen. Those who were about to question him immediately withdrew from the place. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that Paul, who was a Roman citizen, had been placed in chains. Why is that a big part of the story? Because God uses our whole story. I want us to think about, as we close this, it would have been so easy for Paul to say, man, I'm doing the right thing. I'm preaching the right way. I'm, I'm in the right places. I believe in Jesus. You know, he could, he could have said all these things that would have made him look like a better person. But what does he do? He says, I was just like you. I was a hot mess. I was killing Christians. And then I met Jesus and he changed me. He told me everything I had to do. And then I started doing it, you know. And he gives this whole confession. But not only that, but after he gives a confession to the Jews... He goes before the, 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 uh, the Greeks, the Romans, and he says, I'm a Roman citizen. We have a belief that God can use this part of our story, but not all that part of our story. Do you know what I'm saying? We think, ah, God, God can't use the hard stuff. God can't use the failure. God can't use the sin, Right? And we want to mask all that. It's one of our failures as Christians. They go, oh, you holy rollers. Oh, you're so self-righteous. And like, no, we're not. But we, we have a tendency to fall in that box and say, no, no, we are, we are. Because uh, we're so afraid of the truth that God has redeemed us from our sin. And that, that we're allowed. I mean, I don't think Paul is celebrating killing Christians. He's saying, that was me. I was just like you. I don't even, I don't even doubt why you're doing what you're doing right now. But then I met Jesus and everything changed. I want to encourage you in your life. I'm going to encourage myself in my life to own the totality of our stories. 
You might go, well, Bill, you don't know. I'm from a bad place. I didn't come from a good family. I didn't go to church when I was a kid. Um, I don't go to church now as an adult. <laughs> um, whatever your story is, I want you to understand something, that Jesus Christ is no respecter of people, that he shed his blood that you could be free, that I could be free, and that we could be called into a new life in service to him, that we could be changed. But guess what? It's still our story. It's still our family. It's still our hometown. It's still us. And I think if God would let, if, if, if we will let him, God will use our entire story for his glory. All of it. I'm going to pray this morning, and I don't know what God has woken you. I hope something. But I want to pray that God would, um, not just today, not here, not in this moment particularly, but in the week to come, that God would awaken some greater purpose in you. Maybe you've never had that question. Maybe you've thought, you know what, I punched my ticket for heaven, I'm good to go, and I'm just going to live how I want until Jesus comes back and it'll be all good. That is such a sad way to live your Christian life. I'm going to pray that you would this week live into what God has for you in some way. Believe the promises he's made to us. Pray with me if you would. Father God, I thank you so much for the power of your word and the testimony of our brother Paul, who is just like us, and you are just like you. <laughs> that we don't have to be afraid of our broken history. Father, maybe there are people here today that think they're hiding from you. They're like Adam and Eve in the garden. They're like covering up with fig leaves. They made themselves. They're going, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. But in their heart, they know they're not going to be okay. Father God, I pray that you would address them to the point that they know that you know them and you love them, that they would turn themselves over to you. Indeed, Father, the only way we come to you is through full surrender. You are God and we are not. If there is a brother or sister here today that needs to confess that to you by the power of your spirit to say, God, you are God and I am not, and I need Jesus to make me whole. That that good confession would happen by the power of your spirit. I pray, Father, for those of us who know you in this way and who have confessed that, that we would be repenting of our sin and living into your purposes in our life. That we would not take some half-hearted Christianity, but a full-hearted, fully impassioned, fully driven um, following after you. That you'd be glorified. That we would live out our purpose for you in this life. That in the end, uh, we would see you face to face and, and we would know you and you'd be pleased. May you be glorified. We confess today that we do not deserve nor earn our salvation, but you pour it out generously in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that all those who are converted in that way would live passionately for you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.